May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For a long time, I have secretly admired those creative and imaginative wordsmiths who possess this astonishing ability to craft marvelous titles for their sermons and their presentations and their books. In fact, when I encounter a great title, I am a little bit like the Joker, who when Batman pulled another toy from his bag of tricks, exclaimed, where does he get such wonderful toys? You see, I've been a bit challenged in this area. My unaided titles tend to be plodding, pedestrian, and pedantic. And so if you find any kind of creativity in today's title, image me this, know that it is partly borrowed from that criminal savant, the Riddler, who often said, riddle me this. But a riddle is more than a riddle. A riddle is an appeal to curiosity. A riddle is veiled motivation. It invites the hearer to probe the depths of the riddle, to search out its mysteries, and if we are wise, to live out its truth. Riddles provoke response. And the very same thing is true when we come to contemplate what it means to be made in the image of God. The Imago Dei invites us to peer and probe more deeply into the depths of the mystery and all of its fullness. And if we are wise, we seek to realize it more fully in our being and in our doing. Being uh, creatures made in the image of God demands our response. It is no wonder then that this idea of the image of God has captured the imagination of sages across the centuries. They have peered into it and have attempted to explain what it means to be made in the image of God. And some have suggested that the image of God refers to our likeness to God in terms of spiritual powers. They have said that it refers to our power of thought, the power of communication, and a certain power of self-transcendence. And others see in the image of God our capacity to have dominion over creation. And I suspect that all of these ideas have have some merit because we as humans struggle to plumb the depths of this great mystery made in the image of God. But today I don't wish to rehash these various expressions of the image of God in us. Rather, I would like to explore a few assertions that, at least to me, are embedded in the text. First of all, I suggest to you today that God is calling us to image him in our boundary making. Now, I suspect that some of you, if you're like certain friends and colleagues of mine, 
you hear the word boundaries and you consider it another example of psychobabble. I remember several years ago, I conducted a seminar on boundaries in Washington, D.C. And at the end, one participant who was an Asbury Seminary graduate told me that he avoided all seminars on boundaries because he thought it was mere psychobabble. But after the seminar was ended, he told me he had changed his mind. For I had begun my discussion with these first chapters of Genesis. You see, even here in the text that was read, the idea of boundaries appears in verse 27. The text states that God created humans in his image. But very quickly we learn that God differentiated the humans. Being made in his likeness and in his image, they were equal, but clearly differentiated as male and female. Perhaps in the age of Facebook that I read now has 51 different gender options. I was a little astounded by that. Maybe in an age like this, the idea of being made and differentiated as male and female may seem archaic. But here we have the word from God. He made them male and female. We are equal and we share some similarities, but God made us different by design. We are not the same. We are endowed with our unique gifts and our graces and our being. I will not join John Gray in saying that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Quite frankly, I've never been to either place, so I cannot really say whether that is true. But ask any spouse, and that person will tell you the myriad of ways in which men and women are differentiated and different. I find that different is a good word for saner times, as when one says to the other, boy, you're different. For less sane times, different very quickly degenerates into quirky, odd, or stir-crazy. But this boundary-making language does not simply appear in relation to the man and the woman. The language of boundaries is splashed all across the narrative in chapter 1 and even moving into the later chapters. We find it in the language of separation and gathering. Separation means putting things in different places. And as I read this narrative, the language reminds me a little bit of Sesame Street. Some of these things belong together. Some of these things are kind of the same. And God separates them and he gathers them and put them in their different places. We also find boundary language when the text speaks of God creating things after their own kind. You see, God's whole world is clearly differentiated and boundaried. There is no confusion of one thing with another. There are clear lines that are drawn between the heavens and the earth, between the land and the seas, and every creature in creation. 
God has differentiated all of creation, given each element, each animal, and a man and a woman their differentiating characteristics. You see, none of us are meant to lose our uniqueness, even in close interpersonal relationships. We are all meant to have a distinct sense of our being, and it is through that sense of having an eye that permits us to give ourselves to others without fear of losing ourselves in the process. It is indeed this boundaried world that keeps everything from falling into chaos. And when we observe the legitimate boundaries and live within our God-ordained limits, it is then that we are able to find wholeness and healing and the dissipation of chaos. I think that boundaries also demarcate our place and responsibilities in God's created order. It is this characteristic that keeps us from confusing the responsibilities of others with our own. And when we foolishly confuse responsibilities, we tend to overfunction for others, thereby stymieing the other in irresponsibility. Of course, when it comes to ministry, it is easy to rationalize overfunctioning with a thin veneer of compassion. And I have found that there is nothing so stubborn, nothing so unyielding, nothing so recalcitrant as folly masquerading as compassion. Edwin Friedman said that when we overfunction, there's something spiritual that happens because overfunctioning destroys the spiritual quality of the overfunctioner. Have you ever found that's true in your own life? However, when we speak of boundaries, it is important to remember that God Himself is not boundaried. God has no limits, He is unfathomable, infinite, and limitless. But when God relates to His world, he does so through the creation of boundaries. In his commentary on Genesis, Walter Brueggemann suggested that God relates to creation by closeness and distance. Closeness and distance, you see, are boundary words that we can equate to separation and gathering. God wants to be close enough to be intimate with us, but distant enough to allow us the freedom to be. He will not and he does not infringe on the liberty with which he has endowed us. And in relation to living a boundary life, it means that he invites us to live as boundaried creatures, but he will not do it for us. He simply says to us, image me this. Secondly, I think God wants us to image him in his role in creation. Recently, I was listening to the radio and I caught the end of a report in which someone suggested that the creation narrative has caused Christians to abuse the environment. I thought about it, and at first I thought, how crazy, that's not true. But on further reflection, I wonder if he meant 
that Christians could very easily misunderstand the language of dominion and ruling over creation and thereby use it to abuse creation. But I see the language here about dominion and ruling leading in a different direction. In fact, it calls us to a loving care and a stewardship of creation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to this as deputyship. We are God's deputies, meaning that God has entrusted us with the task of developing the rich resources of the earth for the benefit of the human community. This text reminds us that the God in whose image we are made is the Lord of all creation. And he has invited us to partner with him in the continual care and oversight of creation. Of course, sometimes I think that our concern from crea for creation can go a bit awry. I remember being on a trip to California a few years ago. And while there, I saw an article in the local newspaper. It described events surrounding a mountain lion that had climbed a tree in the backyard of a home with small children. And the animal, for the sake of the children, had to be shot. But almost immediately, there was an outcry against the killing of the animal. And in responding to, to that, those kinds of criticism, one man said he thought some persons would have been less offended if the animal had been saved, even if it had killed the children. We ought to care for creation, but sometimes it can go awry. Might I add today that creation care is not simply a matter of caring for things in creation. It is also caring for people in creation. And I honestly wonder today what diligence we might exhibit in caring for others and caring for ourselves if we focus somewhat on the people in creation. But it is very difficult for me to contemplate creation without considering it its unexpected novelties, its grandeur and sheer beauty. God has created a world with sights and songs that titillate the senses. And why would he create such a garden? Why would he create such a place of pleasure? I suggest to you that besides the care of creation, there's another word that captures our responsibility, and the word is enjoy. God seems to enjoy his created world. And so in the narrative that precedes our text, he steps back and he assesses the work he is doing. And then he says, man, that's good. Likewise, God wants us to take pleasure in and enjoy his created world. But you see, pleasure and enjoyment takes time. It takes time to slow down, time to see, and time to enjoy. In line with this thought, Eugene Peterson, the author of the message, suggested that Sabbath was all about prayer, that is worship, and play. So on Sundays after he had worship, he and his wife packed a picnic basket and went out in the mountains to watch birds. 
I found that enthralling. I like the emphasis on prayer and play. But in my somewhat youthful foolishness, I thought to myself, and I even might have said it on occasion, bird watching would not work for me. I much more prefer something more active like playing soccer. But a few years later, almost against my will, almost imperceptibly, I found myself putting out bird feeders. I, I even went out and bought uh, two pairs of binoculars so my wife and I could watch birds in our backyard. And I probed, discovered that Cornell University has the best uh, ornithology lab in the world. So I would go to their website and I learned to recognize the different birds. And there was a little button that I could even click on the button and I would hear the varied songs made by the different birds. And you, so you see, I could recognize them by sight and song. I had learned to enjoy creation in a different play mode. I'd like to add another application of this verse, and I hope that I do not stretch the application too far. I refer, refer again to the idea of having dominion over creation. But this too can go awry in a different way. Namely, I wonder here what happens to us when the things, the very things that we have created begins to have dominion over us. In that bad snowstorm that we had just recently, I kind of drove in it a little, maybe a little bit crazy. But I went to present a paper at the Wesleyan Theological Society in Mount Vernon, Ohio. And while I was there, a professor told a story that illustrates the problem. He spoke about being stuck on a plane in Philadelphia as they waited for an opportunity to fly out. They had waited long enough on the plane that the rules apparently required that passengers be offered the opportunity to deplane. However, the pilot reported they could get the call to take off any time suggesting that it would be best for all the passengers to stay. And to the chagrin of the rest of the passengers, only one person chose to deplane. What motivated her to leave? She wanted to recharge her iPhone and her other gadgets. And while she deplaned, with a resultant delay, the flight was canceled. Have we allowed things even that we have created to dominate our lives and deaden our ability to care for and enjoy all of creation? And then we are called, I think, to image God in his ability to balance work and rest. The statement in 2.2 about God resting can seem strange. How can the infinite, unfathomable, limitless God need rest? Besides, elsewhere in scripture, it indicates that God does not slumber or sleep. But the text says God rested. But 
resting in this verse refers to the cessation of work. I have always thought within myself that at the beginning of creation, God wanted to send a very strong message to all of us about resting and working. And what's more, he wanted to model for us how to go about balancing rest with work. But this verse here in our text is not the only place in this narrative that points to rest. We find it in the continual references throughout the chapter where God apparently pauses to assess his creative work. There's also a reference to evening and morning that brackets each creative activity. You see, all of God's creative activity is bounded by time. There's the evening of rest followed by the day of activity. It is, as if, it is as if in the evening of each created day, the Trinity commune together and says, you know, that's enough for the day. Let's go home. We will come back and hit it again tomorrow. God is a kind of God who is not in any hurry because you cannot rush creativity. A few years ago, I was teaching a Doctor of Ministry course here on stress in ministry. And we started with the reading of this narrative. And one of the members of the class wondered out loud, why is God dilly-dallying? Why is he doing a, a little bit here and a, a little bit there? If it was me, I would do it all at once. That's quite a contrast to the way God goes about creation but it is very much in line with our fevered activity. In his book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster mentioned a concept used by the church fathers. The concept was otium sanctum, translated holy leisure. I suspect that the average person thinks the two words, holy and leisure, do not belong together. It's much like forgetting that work and rest actually do belong together. They are, in fact, like ebony and ivory on the keyboard, each needing the other to make sweet harmony together. What is holy leisure? Foster described it, and I quote, a sense of balance in the life, an ability to be at peace through the activities of the day, an ability to rest and take time to enjoy beauty, an ability to pace ourselves, unquote. God himself seems to me to be a God of holy leisure. God is in no hurry. He leisurely goes about his work of creation. And like a seasoned, reflective artist, he pauses and he makes assessment he takes the time to step back from the canvas and enjoy the beautiful world he was creating. Oh, how I wish that we could learn to image God in his ability to work and rest. That student in that doctor of ministry class did not know how to have holy leisure, and he had paid a heavy price for it. The week after the class ended, he sent me an article 
taken from the Toledo Blade in Ohio. It was a story about him and how he had gone through a period of burnout because of his feverish activity. In fact, his burnout was so severe, he needed to take a six-month sabbatical to recover. The last time I saw him, he was serving as a district superintendent in his denomination and trying to help the ministers under his care to get the message of working and, rest and resting. He had learned that we do not do well if we are always caught up in feverish activity. I suspect that we might rest more if we knew that resting is a sign of faith in God. On that matter, Walter Brueggemann had this to say, and I quote, the celebration of a day of rest was the announcement of trust in this God who is confident enough to rest. It was then and is now an assertion that life does not depend upon our feverish activity, but that there can be a pause in which life is given to us simply as a gift. Unquote. In a very similar vein, Gareth Lloyd-Jones made the following statement relative to Sabbath. Quote, Sabbath breaks the tyranny of time by permitting rest with a clear conscience. It offers an alternative to a life governed by compulsion and coercion and provides the opportunity to distance from everyday demands. It is a survival technique for a society governed by a neurotic drive to achieve. Might it be possible that our fevered activity signals a lack of faith in God? Might it be true that we live under the misperception that everything depends on us rather than God? Could it be that we think if we stop to rest, everything will fall apart rather than being upheld by the almighty hands of God? And can we have faith enough to believe that God continues and upholds our work when we rest? In relation to these matters, I find the words of Helmut Thielke instructive. He wrote them in a 1995 leadership magazine article titled, Beyond Pushing and Producing. And he wrote these words. Take my word for it. You can really serve and worship God simply by lying flat on your back for once and getting away from this everlasting pushing and producing. You want to image God? Image him in these. Amen.